You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 20. Hey there, folks. Welcome to our 20th episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm really excited to see the way this show is gaining ground. More than a thousand people are listening every week. While we have a long way to go to reach the numbers that the Metamore City podcast had in its heyday, I feel like this is really positive growth for the amount of time that the show has been running. For those who are new to this podcast, this is where I share my ongoing writing endeavors with you, my faithful listeners. My goals are to write at least 400 words per day, and at least 6 hours per week, so I can keep bringing you new fiction that's fresh off the writing desk. You'll hear about this week's progress later in the show. For now... Let's get to the story. Today I'm bringing you Part 5 of The Three Graces. If you haven't listened to Parts 1 through 4 yet, go back and listen to them now, because I'm about to drop some major spoilers. When we last left the Grace family, Amelie had just made the decision to let Priestess Allura turn her into a vampire. While Allura was conflicted about this, she felt that it was necessary— Illura's control of the Church of Eternal Brotherhood is being challenged by Malcolm Ardvalos, the prince of Metamore City's Vampire Crime Syndicate. While the Church and the Syndicate both answer to the Vampire Queen, their hierarchies have always remained separate. Now Malcolm is making a play to change that, and Allura needs strong allies she knows she can trust. When the episode ended, Amelie had been in Allura's apartment for three days, learning to control her new powers and feed without doing permanent harm. Unfortunately, the Grace's rise to wealth has already attracted the attention of sophisticated criminals. Natalie is kidnapped on her way home from school, taken right off the street in full view of her friends. Nathan is informed of this by their butler, Harrison, who counsels patience and restraint. The best thing they can do, he says, is wait at the church until the kidnappers call with their demands. In the meantime, Harrison advises Nathan to call Amelie, even though Allura has commanded that they must not be disturbed. The Three Graces A Novel of Metamore City By Chris Lester Part 5 18. Amelie Mistress Elora and I were sharing the blood of two lovely, obedient thralls when a third thrall came into the bedroom with a phone in hand. "'There's a call for you, Mistress Amelie,' the man said, bowing his head and holding the phone out in front of him like an offering. He knew the passwords. He says it's urgent. I sat up and rubbed my head, trying to clear the haze of the sharing— I looked to Elora. It was her phone, after all. Elora waved a hand permissively. Answer it, dear. Your lessons can wait. I took the phone and raised it to my ear. This is Amelie. Mrs. Grace. The voice on the other end was deep, cultured, carefully controlled. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Your daughter has been taken. She is being held in a factory on street level. The address is 4900 Grayling. She is surrounded by twelve guards, all talented mercenaries and heavily armed. For the moment she is unharmed. 
I cannot give any guarantees that she will remain so, if she is still there by daybreak. The man paused, waiting. For a long moment I said nothing. Then shock and fear gave way to rage. What do they want with my daughter? I hissed. Your daughter is nothing to them, the voice said. She is only a means to extract certain demands from you and your husband. They will contact Mr. Grace shortly and request a meeting to present these demands to him. If he attends this meeting, your husband will be taken as well. How do you know all this? I demanded. The man who hired the mercenaries is an employee of mine. The voice sounded almost bored. A crude act, ill-suited to these enlightened times. I am addressing the matter on my end, but I thought you might wish to extract your daughter before any unpleasantness arises. I felt a stab of fresh fear as I realized whom I was talking to. You're Malcolm Advalos, I said. Behind me, Allura gasped. What? She clambered over the bed, spider-quick, until her ear was pressed to the other side of the receiver. I see that you are well informed, Mrs. Grace. His voice sounded only mildly surprised, perhaps a little pleased as well. You will find it is a trade we share in common. I, for instance, know you are no longer a thrall of Priestess Allura. I felt my eyes narrowing. No, Mr. Advalos, I am much more than that now. Good. You will need to be, if you are to save your daughter. The men my employee hired did not come cheap. Why are you telling me all this? I asked. Why help me? Because I believe abducting an innocent child is rude, and because goodwill is a far better foundation for a working partnership than fear and intimidation. Elora laughed bitterly. If goodwill is that important to you, Malcolm, why don't you call off the mercenaries yourself? You are paying them, after all. Ah, Priestess Allura. Advalos sounded pleased. I had hoped we might speak. But you know how this works, my dear. The money that hired the mercenaries was funneled through half a dozen companies before it ever reached their hands. I cannot act directly to recall them without exposing my enterprise to law enforcement. So I act as I am able. Elora scoffed, but I found myself gripping the handset more tightly to my ear. This factory where they're keeping her, I said. Does it have any weaknesses, any secret ways inside? Very good, Mrs. Grace. You can enter the building through the commuter tunnels. The nearest access point is in Howell Station on 139th Street. Go quietly. Many hunters use those tunnels after dark, and some of them have developed a taste for undead flesh. I shuddered at that, but nodded, though of course he couldn't see it. I understand. Thank you, sir. Good hunting, Mrs. Grace. We will speak again. The line went dead. It's a trap, Elora said immediately. She's my daughter, I said. I would walk into the ninth hell for her, and you know it. Elora took my hands. Amelie, listen to me. Malcolm Advalos is ruthless, cruel, manipulative. He does nothing without at least three contingency plans. Do you expect me to believe that a creature like that just lost control of one of his enforcers? Control is what he does. She lowered her head to look directly in my eyes. Their power still drew me, but I had power of my own now. 
I met her gaze squarely, honouring her, but not grovelling before her. I was not her equal, would never be, but I was something much closer than I once had been. If you do as he says, you will suffer, Elora said. I don't know how or when, but it will cost you. He will draw you in and tie you down until all that you are is his. I shook my head. It doesn't matter, mistress. If Natalie is in danger, then she's in danger because of me, because of the choices I made, the choices that brought me here. I have to save her. Anger flashed in Allura's eyes, then faded. I could command you not to go, she said, her voice low and subdued. You could do, I agreed, and I would hate you for the rest of my days. I squeezed her hand. I don't think either of us wants that. Elora looked down at our joined hands. No, she murmured. Oh, sweet Amelie, what a gift the Dark Mother gave me and you. She looked back up, put her hands on each side of my face, holding it tenderly. Go then, save your daughter. I closed my eyes. Thank you, my lady. She rose to her feet, and I did likewise. I'll make sure your dear husband doesn't get himself kidnapped or killed, she said. He should still be at the church if I hurry. Thank you, I said again. We dressed quickly, armed ourselves with the best equipment Elora had in her apartment, and headed out into the night, determined to save our dear ones at any cost. 19. Nathan the call came in less than an hour later, just as Harrison had predicted. The butler had come to the church as quickly as he could, bringing coffee and an insulated flask and a few other practical items. He listened in while I spoke with the kidnappers. The man on the other end sounded like I imagined swoop gang members must sound. Gruff, growling, occasionally profane. He told me we needed to discuss the terms for getting Natalie back, and he gave me an address where I should meet him. We agreed to meet at nine o'clock, and I rang off. What do you think? I asked Harrison. Does he want ransom or favors? Harrison frowned. He's a strange kidnapper, sir. There is a script to these sorts of affairs, but he was not following it. I suspect this is outside his usual line. So there's no way of knowing what he wants? The door to my office opened and Priestess Allura stepped through. He wants you, my dear. I rose immediately and bowed to her. Mistress, do you know what's going on? More than you do, I fear. As she approached, Allura nodded to my butler in greeting. Hello, Harrison. How are you enjoying life with the Graces? Harrison bowed deeply at the waist. Better before tonight, Mistress Allura. Allura smiled without humor. Indeed, but I feel better knowing they have you to watch over them. The priestess sat and quickly brought me and Harrison up to speed about the call from Malcolm Ardvalos, the plan to kidnap me when I went to tonight's meeting, and Amelie's desperate mission to rescue Natalie. I don't understand, I said. How can Amelie hope to rescue Nat all by herself? Elora grimaced. This wasn't the way I was hoping to tell you, Nathan. 
You know that Amelie and I have been unavailable for these last three days. I have been grooming her for the priesthood for years, and three nights ago, I brought her through the last step in her ascension. A year ago, I wouldn't have had any idea what that meant. Now, though, I understood. You turned her, I whispered. Amelie, my wife, you turned her. Elora looked me in the eyes and nodded. I did. I asked her to stand beside me, to support me, if the church should come under attack from Malcolm's criminal enterprise. She agreed. I didn't know how to feel. On one level, Elora was our mistress. She had every right to promote one of her thralls to become her child. Part of me was thrilled for Amelie. She had received the highest blessing of the blood— had joined the ranks of leadership in the church that she had devoted her life to. But she was also my wife. Blood of my blood, heart of my heart. Our bond was older than our participation in the church, and it had always been a bond between equals. But now I was only a mortal, and Amelie had been elevated above me. What would I be to her now? Her husband? Her consort? Her thrall? I can't believe she didn't talk to me first, I said, shaking my head. I can't believe she hid it from me afterwards. There was good reason for the second, if not the first, Elora said. A fledgling vampire lacks control, and my bloodline is strong. She has great power, and that takes time to master. She did not want to reveal herself to you until she knew that she had the discipline to control her new instincts. And what about now? I demanded. Does she have enough control now? Because you just sent her alone to find our daughter, in a place where a bunch of bad guys will be trying to kill her. (sighs) Believe me, the thought crossed my mind. But I think her maternal instincts will be strong enough to protect Natalie. You think? I'm going to join up with her, just as soon as I get you to safety. I needed to make sure you didn't fall for their trap. That stung my pride a little. I'm not a babe in the woods, mistress. I have Harrison with me. We were going to be careful. Careful isn't enough. You don't know the syndicate like I do. Men like Ardvalos put the wiliest lawyer to shame. Traps within traps within traps. That's how they operate. Malcolm says he's trying to help Amelie, but I'll stake my own heart if he doesn't find a way to pull a victory out of this. Then what do you recommend? But before she could answer... A thudding boom ran through the tower, and the fire alarm started screaming. That was an explosion, Harrison said. His voice was as tense as I'd ever heard it, which maybe wasn't saying much, but it got my attention anyway. Where? I asked. Harrison frowned. About four floors down, I think. Allura and I shared a wide-eyed look. The furnace room, she said, echoing my worst fears. If the gas mains had ruptured, the whole church would be on fire within minutes. How many people are in the building right now? I asked. Elora closed her eyes, apparently doing a quick tally. Thirty-eight. Acolytes, cleaning crew, office workers like you? I rose quickly and crossed to the kitchenette area behind my receptionist's desk. I pulled a stack of hand towels out of the drawer and ran cold water over them, soaking them thoroughly. I tossed a handful of them to Harrison, 
and another to Allura, keeping the rest for myself. For the smoke, I said. Give one to anyone you find and help them get out. Allura nodded approvingly. Good thinking. Follow me. I'll be able to see better, and I know all the exits. Mistress Allura, Harrison said sternly, you are at a greater risk from the fire than any of us. You should change form and leave immediately through the window. He turned his gaze on me. As should you, sir. Neither of you should risk your lives so carelessly. Elora put a hand quickly to his cheek, a brief but tender gesture, then went to the kitchenette herself, where she started soaking her clothes under the tap. Thank you, Harrison, but I only need to avoid open flames. I don't have to breathe, I'm immune to heat exhaustion, and I can see in the dark. Three things that even you can't say for yourself. Harrison's expression was pained. My lady, please, do not do this. This is not a discussion. I am not leaving my people to die. We're moving. Now. She ran to the door to the fire stairs, much faster than Harrison and I could keep up, looked through the window to be sure the staircase was clear, then doubled back to start checking the other offices. She was back before we even reached the staircase. Everyone's out on this floor. We hit the stairs, running. On the next floor I could smell the smoke, and I could hear others shouting to each other over the wail of the alarms. Elora left us at the landing and raced through the rooms on that floor, shouting to her followers to run for the exit. Some of them started appearing moments later, clutching their soaked towels. I waved them on past me. Two more flights and then you're out on the skyway, I said. Run, and don't stop until you're on the far side of the plaza. Go! Elora returned, and we continued our descent. We came to a cloud of smoke that filled the stairwell, took a deep breath through our towels, and plunged in. It was like stepping into the sixth hell. Blackness washed over me. My eyes burned. The heat was an all-encompassing, smothering thing. It would have been hard to breathe, even if the air weren't filled with smoke. I put one hand toward the side of the stairwell, trying to guide my steps, and pulled back instantly. The stone itself was so hot it burned. I plunged on blindly, trying to remember how many steps there were above each landing. I guessed wrong, stumbled, bumped against the burning hot walls again, and kept moving. The building creaked and groaned under the stresses of the fire. I heard booms and crashes as girders fell and support pillars gave way somewhere nearby. I had no idea where Allura was, where Harrison was, or, for that matter, where I was. Not until the lights of the exit sign burned their way through the smoke right in front of me. I hit the push bar and felt a wave of shockingly cold air slam into me. I kept running. My eyes swam with tears, trying to flush the smoke out of my eyes. Someone caught me and stopped me before I ran over my co-workers, who were sitting on the curb in front of me. Easy, sir. Easy the man said. He was a big guy, almost as tall as I was, and with a much deeper voice. I wiped at my eyes and saw a firefighter standing in front of me. Where's Priestess Allura? I demanded. I whipped my head this way and that, still half blind and more than half panicked. Harrison? Here, sir. Harrison came running up behind me, soot clinging to his formerly immaculate suit. Damn it all, he still didn't look out of breath. Where's the mistress? I asked him. 
In answer, he pointed to a figure poised in a window one floor above the skyway. Elora had a limp body slung over each shoulder. She looked down for a moment, then jumped, a bounding leap that landed ten meters out from the front of the building. She fell into a crouch, barely jostling her two passengers, then ran the rest of the way to the rally point. She laid down the two figures, a thrall and an acolyte, I could tell from their outfits, and turned to the firefighter. The man had gone white as a sheet when he realized what she was. These two need medical attention, she said, then started running back toward the burning church. Ma'am, you can't go back in there, the firefighter shouted. There are others trapped, Elura shouted over her shoulder. I'm not leaving them. Ma'am, you go in there, you die. Elura turned and looked at us then, just for a second. She didn't say anything, just gave us this big, bright grin as fierce and wild as anything I'd ever seen. Her eyes flashed this yellow-green like a cat's. Then she turned back and kept running, back into the flaming church. She pulled two more people out a few seconds later. These two were still walking. Where she'd found them, I don't know. Maybe a cellar or something. She pushed them toward the rally point, and they started running. Elora disappeared back into the building. Ten seconds later came the second explosion. I don't know how it happened. Maybe it was another gas line. Maybe Allura opened the wrong door and caused a backdraft. Or maybe someone did it on purpose. Whatever the cause, it blew out all the windows on the first and second floors, and dust and smoke came pouring out as the church collapsed in on itself. The outer fascia remained standing, but inside... Mistress, I whispered. The tears started filling my eyes again. Harrison put his hand on my shoulder. I'm sorry, sir. She's gone. We all bowed our heads and wept. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. She was a predator. She was a manipulator who controlled people, with religion and with her magic. She seduced my wife, used her to get to me and my daughter, kept us like we were pets or slaves. And all of that, all of that is true. But it is also true that she loved us, that she cared for us, that she tried to protect us from monsters worse than herself. And in the end, I saw her run into the fire again and again to save every last person she could before it killed her. <laughs> say what you will about vampires. God knows there's plenty of bad to say about them. But Allura died a fucking hero. And damn it, after all she did to me and mine, I still loved her. <laughs> I still love her.
that's the end of part five. I'll be taking next week off, folks. I'm headed up to Glacier National Park before it closes for the season, so I won't be around to work on the podcast. We'll return on the weekend of October 10th through 11th with part six. Natalie waits for help to come, but when Amelie appears with her new vampire powers, the result isn't what either of them expected. That's coming up in two weeks. Maya Angelou said, There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Consider this my pain management plan. Here's your weekly writing report. I'm recording this episode on Thursday, because that's when I have the time off, so I don't actually have a full week's worth of numbers for you at this time. Over the last five days, though, I've written 3,061 words in the course of five hours, for an average writing speed of 612 words per hour. I have been inching my way toward the finish line on maternal instinct. I really want to get this one finished up this week. Fortunately, with my vacation time coming up next week, I have no excuse not to finish it. Wish me luck. Finally, let's look at some feedback. Adam Schmidt writes, Hey Chris, Adam here again. I gotta say, I love how deep Three Graces is getting. Natalie's kidnapping pretty much set the stage for the next few parts, and I'm super excited to see how events unfold. I can't help but wonder whether things are going to get heated between Allura and the Syndicate, or if things will be handled diplomatically. Personally, I have a great love for steady-build storytelling, where the action and intensity slowly builds and builds at a constant rate. Unquote. Thanks, Adam. I'm glad you're digging the story. Interesting choice of words there, getting heated. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Tune in next time to hear what happens with Amelie and the Kidnappers. Hey Chris, this is Nobilis, offering you some feedback on your audio quality. If you want to go pro, I think you need to reduce some of your high frequencies that are coming up in a whistling sound in your essence. It's not something that people really think about too much in conversation, but it, it does become harsh in a recording. So look into putting a filter on your audio when you process it or whatever to DS the file. I do that with a lot of mine just as a matter of course because rather than go through and say, oh, there's one, there's one, I just block out those frequencies. There's no good use for the extremely high frequency sounds in narration. Anyways, there you go. Thanks for the tip, Nobilis. I have to apologize for the particularly harsh S sounds in the last two episodes. I have a strong S to begin with, and it was made a lot worse by some cold-related issues I was having in my upper sinuses. I'm feeling much better as I write this, so hopefully it will lead to less noise on that front in this week's recording. Let me know if you think it sounds better. Terry DeWeese, I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, wrote in on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. Terry says, I was wondering if Chris made up the quote, man is a wolf under the world but longs to be a dog. I wanted to share that with another group of mine. I want to make sure I've given the correct attribution. Unquote. Well, the truth is it isn't original to me, but I'll be darned if I can find the original source. I read it on a libertarian proto-blog almost 20 years ago, and it's stuck with me ever since. 
and I don't even remember the name of it anymore. I can tell you that the first part of the quote, Man is everywhere a wolf, was part of a speech by Jehan Sadat, the widow of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, who used it in an address to the National Press Club in 1982. I don't know if it's a translation of a common Arabic saying or if she came up with it herself. You should check out the speech, though, because there's some awesome stuff in there. I've put a clip of the video on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. Patty Heaney writes, It is with a heavy heart that I must announce my retirement from drunken dialing voicemail. I've been ordered to give up alcohol by my doctor, and there's no sign of when or if I'll be able to drink it again. I ask that my fellow fans consider taking up my mantle of inane yet humorous calls to continue my proud tradition. Patty, we will all miss your epic drunken voicemails, but I'm glad you're following your doctor's advice. Take care of yourself, and if you ever want to send non-drunken feedback, please know it is very welcome. Nobilis started a very interesting discussion over at the Fans of Metamore City Facebook page. He writes... The topic of religions having come up recently, I got to thinking about Metamore City, and it seems that even with all the many religions MC has running around, none of them seem to have expressed that meme for we have the one truth, everyone else is wicked and doomed, that seems to crop up so often on Earth. Is there something about the meme system of Metamore City, some element of its cultural immune system, that prevents that meme from taking hold? Unquote. This was a great question, and it generated a lot of interesting replies. Several fans noted that with multiple gods walking around on the earth, it was harder for the followers of any one of them to state that they had a monopoly on religious truth. Mildred Cady noted that there had been major religious conflicts in the world of Metamore back in earlier times, and if you want to read more about those conflicts, check out the Metamore Keep story universe over at metamorekeep.com. I recommend Charles Matthias's story, Liturgy of Blood, in which the Patriarch of the Ecclesia visits Metamore for the first time, and my own story, In the Absence of Martyrs, where Sister Raven investigates rumors that an ecclesiast priest is slaughtering followers of the old religion. Millie also made another good point. As was mentioned in a few Metamore City stories, there is a blank space in the near future where all prophecy fails. Not even the gods can see beyond that point, and it's made a lot of them very nervous. This is the sort of thing that a charismatic cult leader could get a lot of mileage out of, so even if we haven't seen this sort of extreme fundamentalism yet, there's a good chance it could crop up in the future. There's a lot more to this discussion, so head over to the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group if you want to see the rest of the comments. Hi Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. Hopefully this will be a nice clean recording. I am calling with feedback for part four of the Three Graces. Definitely was not expecting Allura to be going up against Malcolm Ardvalos. I either forgot or didn't know that there were different factions within the vampires. I mean, I knew that you had outliers like Morgan who weren't affiliated with the Syndicate, but I didn't really know that the Church of the Eternal Brotherhood was completely separate. So that was definitely interesting, and good point about the vampires being seen through the Psy Collective's eyes as being totally different since they're mortal enemies. Hi, Sarah. Don't worry, you didn't miss anything. We've never seen the Church of Eternal Brotherhood before, except for a quick cameo in Nobilis Reed's story, Alive. 
The independent factions among Talia's followers were always an element there in the background, but this is the first time I've had occasion to show it on screen. The reasons for it go back to Talia's role in the Pantheon. She represents the natural forces of predation and competition, the struggle to survive by pitting your strength against the strength of others. And while predators can certainly cooperate to achieve a larger goal, that fierce drive to challenge and compete with others is something that's always part of a predator's social structure. You can think of the syndicate and the church as two separate wolf packs, with competition between the packs, for resources and territory, and within the packs, for social status within the hierarchy. From Talia's point of view, this competition helps all of her followers to become stronger. Incidentally, there is another faction of Talia's followers, the Lycanthropes, which we also haven't seen yet. They're completely separate from the vampire factions, and they have their own mission, which I'm hoping to go into in another story sometime in the next few months. I definitely saw from Allura this time some things that I didn't expect to. Yes, she is abusive towards the graces and manipulative and all these other things, but you can see a little piece here of her fear, and you can see that she cares for Amelie just by the care she's taking before turning her, unless that's all like part of an act to, you know, make Amelie more sympathetic or something. But I don't know. I don't really think it is an act. As you saw in this episode, your instincts about Allura were correct. For all her flaws, she really did care about the people under her, enough that she was even willing to give her life for them. It just is a cool thing, because I definitely like it when even the, quote, bad guys are nuanced. I find that to be more interesting than when it's like, okay, this person is evil because they're evil, and they'll always be evil the end. It's like, okay, that sometimes works, but usually it's more interesting if they have more to them than that. I mean, even the character of yours that I consider the most heinous, at least from my recollection, Victor, I mean, even him you could sympathize with at the very beginning of the story when he's feeling like he's just been kind of used up and then now he's not going to get to do any of the things he wanted to do or any of the normal life aspirations for a side because of all the fucked upness in his brain from him doing their work. But anyway, so, you know, even though he's a horrible person, you can at least feel like, oh man, well, that sucks that he went through that. Agreed. With Victor, it was especially important to establish understandable human reasons for his decisions, because otherwise we could never have believed that he and Daniel would become friends, or that Brian and the other psyops would have followed him. In particular, Victor had to serve as Daniel's shadow archetype in this story. He's faced with all the same stressors that Daniel is, but takes the path of destruction and cynicism, instead of the path of creation and hope. I would argue that there is one villain I've created who is even more heinous than Victor, though, namely Braddock, the vampire who turned and then tormented both Miriam and Morgan. We haven't seen enough of Braddock to understand why he does what he does, or how he came to be the way he is. Maybe some of that will come to light when Morgan's backstory is told. Anyway, I liked the introduction of the Belfry and the butler, <laughs> Natalie's wonderment about, you know, what does a butler actually do, was both amusing and, well, realistic, honestly. I mean, I don't, didn't really know that that's what exactly butlers did. I don't know. <laughs> Whether or not that's what all butlers do, it is how Harrison sees his role in the Grace household. 
As you saw in this episode, there is more to Harrison than meets the eye. In general, a butler is the chief of staff in charge of a large household, with particular responsibility for the male servants, the dining room, the wine cellar, and the pantry. If you want to see a great example of a more traditional butler, I must recommend Downton Abbey and the character of Mr. Carson. Harrison, apparently having spent a great deal of time among the vampires, has also added a more martial bodyguard aspect to his role. I don't know Harrison's backstory, but I wouldn't be surprised if he has some kind of special forces training. But I thought that the whole safe call thing, the code for having him come to get her, was really uh, pretty smart on his part. And the fact that he got there soon enough to know what was going on, at least mostly, definitely bodes better for her. I totally understand the fear that Nathan's going through now. And it's got to be scary because he knows who they're allied with. So it's like, okay, well, who is it then that would be against that? Or is it nothing to do with the associations they have after all and just something completely personal? So it's definitely interesting to wonder what's going to happen next with that. It's exciting. Um, I feel like for those of us who have listened to Dreams of Change, we have some spoilers, at least in terms of whether or not certain people will be okay or whatever. But I'm definitely curious to see what happens next. Thanks, Sarah. And yes, you know that certain people will get out of this alive and safe and mostly sane. But as with making the cut and troubled minds, I think it's how we get there that's really interesting. It's time to recognize this week's new Patreon patrons, Adam and Jade. In addition, Cunum just increased his monthly pledge to the $15 a month level which means he will now get free copies of every new ebook I release. That's in addition to the Creative Council perk, where he gets to vote on the stories I will work on during the month of October, and the Early Access perk, which gives him access to story previews, author commentaries, and more. Thanks to the support of these and my other Patreon patrons, we are now very close to reaching that $100 a month milestone. If we do, then during the following month, I will write and release a bonus episode of the podcast. If you want to help us get there, visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make your pledge today. If you'd like to sound off about the show, send your comments in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and my handle on Twitter is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To engage in conversations with your fellow metamorphs, join the fans of Metamorph City Facebook group or the Metamore City discussion forums at metamorecity.freeforums.org. That's all for this week. I'm off to Glacier National Park, so I'll talk to you in two weeks when I get back. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The theme music for The Three Graces is A Girl Alone by Hungry Lucy. It was made available for use through Mevio's Music Alley, the Podsafe Music Network. For more of their music, please visit HungryLucy.com. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. 
The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.